Right, we've just been singing that our God is forever faithful, he's forever strong, and he's forever with us. And these things tie in with uh, what I feel God has for us for today. I'm afraid this week there won't be any cheese illustrations. So we're going to go straight in at... 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. So, (coughs) 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 17. For it is better to suffer from doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect (coughs) to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Archbishop Robert Layton writing 350 years ago, said the following about part of this passage. This passage is rather obscure. As is usually the case, the interpreters make it even more obscure with all their loud opinions. And as you probably noticed as I was reading through, I'd be very surprised if there weren't at least one or two places when you're thinking, I wonder what on earth he's getting at there. I think if we're going to understand passages in Scripture which are obscure, we need to start from what is clear, not start from what is obscure. If we start by trying to look at the obscure passages and analyse them in detail to find out what they're saying, uh, you go round and round in circles. So in the passage about what it talks about with Jesus preaching to spirits in prison in the day of Noah, there's at least five main interpretations of what that's about in terms of who he was preaching to, when, 
etc. I'm not planning to go into any of that. If you want to, Wayne Grudem deals with it very well. Uh, but the view he comes to, which is mainly the one I'm going to be using, uh, is a minority view, but uh, I think fits the scriptures best overall. But let's remember what is the general context Peter is writing about. He's writing in the context of unjust suffering. We need to remember that even when Luke was talking about submission to authorities, when last week Sam and Steph were talking about husbands and wives, the basic thing behind all of it is unjust suffering. Doesn't mean that's the only thing here. Doesn't mean the truths about husbands and wives don't apply in other situations. But that is the context he is talking about. So we need to be remembering in all of this, there's always in the background the idea that if we're following Jesus, we will come across unjust suffering. I think to understand this passage, there are three areas we need to keep in mind. So I'm going to go through those first, and then I'm going to go through the passage a bit at a time, and you'll keep seeing these themes keep coming back. I think the first theme we need to remember when we're understanding this is that Jesus is our example. The whole reason Peter is writing, well not the whole reason, but one of the main reasons Peter is writing here is to remind uh, the Christians in these parts of what's now Turkey who were going through difficult times, you know, if you want to know what to do, look to Jesus, look to see the example he gave. There's also, running through this, it was mentioned earlier in the chapter in verse 14, but behind it is the idea we do not need to fear what we're going through because Jesus has already saved us. And so for the fact that Jesus has saved us is of prime importance. And if we are going through this, if we're experiencing unjust suffering, we do not need to retaliate because all will be judged by Jesus. So if anything happens now which is unjust, we do not need to be worry about that because it will be dealt with in time. It might be at the day of judgment, but it will be dealt with. So we do not need to retaliate ourselves in the current situation. Now, these themes all interact with each other. And Peter, when he's writing, doesn't do things in a sort of uh, systematic theological way where first of all he deals with one bit, then he deals with the next bit, and then he deals with the next bit. You'll notice it sort of goes round and round in circles and it keeps picking back up on the themes as he goes along. Which again can make it seem a bit confusing because you think, well, what, which, what's he talking about at this point? But if we look at this, I think we'll find that it is... It's got a lot which can speak to us now. And actually, when uh, we're at the leadership conference, 
a lot of the themes which came out then, I thought, well, actually, that's something I'm talking about on Sunday. Now, they were usually coming at it from a slightly different perspective, uh, but, you know, these are themes which I think God is speaking to his church. And I think one of the things which Mike Betts uh, was saying was that, you know, what God is speaking to us in a relational mission is not something, if you like, special to relational mission. It's something he's speaking to the church uh, across the world in different streams, different denominations. You, you get it, these themes are coming through. So, let's look at the first theme. Jesus is our example. Now, this is one of the times when we probably don't want to be like Jesus. Because it says in chapter 3 and verse 18, For Jesus, for Christ also suffered. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Why are we called Christians? Because we follow Jesus Christ. The servant is not greater than the master. Therefore, if Jesus suffered, it should not surprise us if we find we get unjust suffering as well. If you thought that being a Christian, becoming a Christian would keep you from difficulty, you are misled. Jesus is the answer to our problems, but we do need to walk his way. And his way did involve suffering. But we do need to remember what it says in verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. First point. If we suffer, it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I don't know about you, but I find it painful when you read in the media of reports of child abuse in the church. Picking up on one thing Sam was saying last time. If a husband is abusing their wife or children, we should expect that to get revealed. God does not keep secrets. One of the things of abuse often, of manipulation, is to try and keep what is happening secret. No, God will reveal it. But it's be as Sam said, it's better to get help first rather than wait for it to be revealed. We serve a righteous God. So first of all, we don't want, when suffering comes, for it to be for something evil which we've done. But also notice, it's if it's God's will. At various stages in church history, there's been an emphasis on suffering, as if suffering in itself is good. Suffering in itself is not good. So there's no benefit in self-inflicted pain, thinking that by making yourself suffer, you're somehow going to uh, please God, or that somehow is going to do you good. 
There's no benefit in deliberately provoking suffering. We know that it, does, it happens elsewhere as well, but I've heard about it most frequently, say, in Pakistan, where there have been cases where Christians have been maliciously accused of desecrating pages of the Quran. And uh, usually when you dig down, you find there's usually been some sort of uh, conflict over land ownership or something else. And it's a way being used to, uh, for somebody to get what they want. But it does happen that that happens maliciously. There is no benefit in deliberately desecrating a Quran to get Muslims to attack you, as has happened in the past, uh, happened in medieval times in Spain, for example. So there's no benefit in suffering in and of itself. But if God does choose that we undergo unjust suffering, he will use that for his glory. But suffering is not something to go out and look for. As we go on through the passage into verse 18 and to verse 21, it talks here of various ways in which Jesus has saved us and uses various pictures for that. We need to remember that Jesus suffered once for sins. It's something in the past we do not need to su uh, suffer for sins now because Jesus has done that. He who was righteous for us who are unrighteous. And he was put to death in the flesh, on the cross, and he rose again victorious, made, as it describes here, made alive in the spirit. And because he did that, we too can know that security of his resurrection. It's very difficult to know the exact way people were thinking, what was happening at the time of Peter writing this. About all we have on this exact period is in the New Testament. Most of what we can know from archaeology and other people writing tends to come from at least 50 years later when there are actually more Christians around and so people were doing more. I think, unfortunately, yesterday might have been the last day you could watch it on iPlayer, but BBC have had a series which is running called The Dark Ages, uh, A Period of Light, I think, or something like that. But the first programme was called The Clash of Gods and was actually on the growth of Christianity. And it was looking at art and archaeology, what does that tell us about that period? And if you go into the catacombs in Rome, the earliest... Christian art you see where Christians met, what they tended to show were things like Noah and the Ark. In one sense, if you were a persecuted church, you needed hidden ways of telling other people this is where you met. So it's not, it's like obviously Christian, 
You know, somebody else see it will see a boat and some people and some animals. But a Christian will know what it's talking about. It's talking about our salvation. It's talking about salvation in the time before Jesus came. So we are secure in the salvation we have because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Noah was looking forward to that. We can look back to it. He was looking forward to that. The people at his time, only eight were saved. The people at his time had no excuse for uh, the fact that they died. Because through Noah, Jesus was preaching to them the truth of the gospel about salvation. And people closed their ears to what was being said. Now, the thing which reminds us of the salvation we have is baptism. So Peter goes on from Noah, okay, still using a water metaphor, if you like, into baptism. We are saved again. Ultimately, it wasn't the ark which saved Noah and the people with him. It was Noah's faith in God which saved him. The fact that he was righteous before God. If you like, the ark was the physical means of doing it. In the same way, baptism in and of itself does not save us. It's our faith in Jesus which saves us. But the way we show that is through baptism. So all of this bit here is reminding us we have been saved by Jesus. If we are living in a time when there's unjust suffering, that does not affect the fact that we have been saved. Noah was maligned by the people of his time, saying, you know, what on earth are you do building this great wooden thing you're calling an ark? You know, there's no sea anywhere near here. Actually, you could argue whether there's a sea anywhere around at that point, but that's a different issue. All right? But, you know, people were mocking him <coughs> right up to the time that it started to rain right up to the time that God closed them up in the ark. But remember what else it tells us. It tells us that God was patient with the people in the time of Noah. He gave them a lot of time to repent. I didn't check out how long it took Noah to build the ark but if you're building that sort of with wood you've got to chop down the trees you've got eight well according to how you count it four or eight people doing all the hard work it's not going to be something you do quickly <coughs> they had time God is patient now he is patient with all the people on this earth who do not yet know him, who ignore him, who malign him. But that doesn't mean that his patience will last forever. But it is an encouragement to us that God is patient 
with people. So if we keep praying for them, keep witnessing to them, we will see people saved. So we are saved by Jesus. And then going on to verse 22, we are reminded of the following. That he has, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. They are subjected to him. All other authorities have to bow down to him, have to place themselves beneath his feet. This is why, as in verse 14, it says, we do not need to fear those who might bring persecution. Because we know that Jesus is in overall control. He has sat down, and has been reminded previously by other preachers, you know, that in that culture, that means he sat down, his work is finished, it's complete. He's in a position of rule. And therefore, we have great security in that. If persecution comes and affects us, or maybe it'd be more when persecution comes and affects us, if our ultimate trust is in our faith in Jesus alone, we're going to might quaver. But if our trust is in Jesus, who we know is seated on high, who is ruling, no, we need that confidence that Jesus is not just that we've been saved and somehow we might scrape through this life into the next life. It's more Jesus has saved us and we are secure in him. And no matter what might happen to us in this life, that security is not affected. So, how do we apply it? The chapter 4 goes into a bit some application of this. Interestingly, at, I know he tweeted it about two weeks before the conference, but at the conference, Mike Betts was commenting that it must have been about two weeks ago, he was talking to a church leader from what we'd normally call a closed country, where for it is, you know, we, we can't really talk about which country it is because that could cause danger to Christians in the country. And this leader said, they do not fear prison. They know how to cope with prison. But what would, could destroy the church would be the kind of wealth and materialism you see in the church in this country. When you have something which you can lose, it really brings home whether you actually trust in Jesus or not. It says here in verse 1, Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, it's, I'll come back to the latter part of that in a moment. 
if you have to suffer because of your faith, that is a very good way of telling how, well, how genuine your faith is. If your faith is going to cost you something, if you're going to lose property, if you're going to lose wealth, going to lose your liberty because of your faith, that is when you, it shows whether your faith is genuine or not. Terry Virgo, when he was speaking at the conference, made this comment. Nehemiah faced no opposition when he was a dreamer thinking of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. It was when he went about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem that the opposition came. As long as we are a comfortable group meeting together here, supporting one another, which is all very good, we're not going to find much opposition. But, if we're going to impact our town, if we're going to see people saved, we will find opposition. There haven't been many martyrs in Kent in the last couple of centuries. There was one in East Sussex in the late 1800s. The Salvation Army was having a parade through Hastings as part of their outreach. One effect of people being saved was that they were not spending all their money on beer and therefore the local brewers were not too keen on this and they organised a riot to try and stop the Salvation Army. A brick or stone was thrown hit one of the young women in the march on the head and killed her. If we're going to see, have an impact on the town which will see people being saved and changing their lives, that is going to have an impact on other people who are going to object to that. Fact of life. So, are we ready for that? That is a question we have to ask ourselves. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll use the example again. Back in the 1970s, this country was in a much worse state than it is now. The amount of civil disorder was much greater than it is now. There was even doubts as to whether the government could actually really rule the country in a way you just don't see now. Now I had grown up in a Christian family. 
Now, at one stage, I'd say that I became a Christian on my 15th birthday. That makes it easy to remember. It was the 6th of April, 1970. Now, looking back, I think it's actually, I wouldn't say that that's, there was a hard and fast, I became a Christian then. But one thing I will say was that at that time, I made a decision that following Jesus was going to be the main thing in my life. And everything else would take second place. Now, getting into the mid-70s, I can't remember this was before or after Lynn and I got married, but it was that sort of time. I was involved, again as I mentioned, with various groups where some people were uh, from the far left, Maoist, Marxist, and I knew then what was happening to Christians. You know, we just had the 50th anniversary of the start of the Cultural Revolution in China. I knew what was happening to Christians in China at that time. To be honest, at that time, I didn't expect I would be alive now. I, I, expe- I expected that within the next 10, 20 years, or probably actually 10 years, there would have been a communist takeover. These days we can see it's totally unrealistic, it wouldn't have happened, but it didn't feel like that at the time. And if I was a committed Christian, that might mean I ended up in a labour camp. And knowing my physical uh, stature, my chance of surviving that would not be high. But, I made the decision, I knew if I had to do that, I would. If that meant my children had no father, that would be the price. I think there's a times when we need to be clear. Oh, you know, am I willing to pay the ultimate price to follow Jesus. Now, from what I said in a previous time, from what Peter says, for most of you that won't be the case. It won't necessarily happen. But if persecution did come, the people most likely to be affected early on would be Sam and myself. Because people would think, or take the leaders out, then everybody else would just drift away. If that happened, and God called you, would you be willing to step up? Knowing in three to six months it might be you. And then if that happens, for somebody else to step up. As I say, the probability of this happening is low. But it doesn't mean it can't happen. There's a lot of benefit in thinking these things through early so you know you've already done okay I'm not saying if it got to that stage for me it wouldn't have, would have been easy but at least I've done the mental th- thought yes I'm willing to do that because we need to know that we've made a clear break with sin doesn't mean we're not going to sin anymore But it does mean 
we've made this decision that actually following Jesus is the prime thing. It's not an add-on. I think the problem, in a sense, with the church at the moment in this country, one problem, is it's almost easy to drift into becoming a Christian. It's easy to think of it as just a slight change of lifestyle rather than a change on who your master is. Because it says here, you know, when you become a Christian, you're not going to do all the things you used to do. The people who you knew, who used to do those things with you, will now malign you. Even if you don't say anything, they will think that you're judging them, even if you're not. And that, in fact, you can even get the situation where almost simultaneously people will see that you've become a Christian and will be impressed by the change in your lifestyle, but at the same time feel attacked by the fact that you are now different because of the change Jesus has made in your life. But we're reminded in the last verse of this passage, in verse 6, that this was why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Now he's talking here about those who, Christians who've already died. But in a sense it also applies to us. It says, although they are judged in the flesh the same way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We know that death came into this world because of sin. We as Christians, unless the Lord returns before then, we too will die. That's what it means here by judged in the flesh. But for us, that is not the final statement. Because we are already born again in the spirit. So therefore, what happens to us whether we die a natural death, whether we die a martyr's death, whether we die because of the situation we're in, because of where God's taken us. We still know that God is with us and we are secure in him. Could the band come up? So they're ready. Right. I think when I was preparing this, I felt it's a time where it is a time where for some people it's a time of where a response is needed. Now, there's three groups of people who I think this could be for. I don't know if this person would apply to anyone now, but I'll say it anyway. If you're not already a Christian, but you know you want to respond to the call Jesus is putting on your life, if you want to repent of the sins you've committed and make a clear break from sin, 
to receive the Father's forgiveness solely based on Jesus' sacrifice, I'm actually going to ask you to come forward in a moment when I ask to the front. I think there's a tendency now to try and make giving your life to Jesus easy. But actually, it's something, if you become a Christian, you've got to stand despite what your friends, relatives might think. So I think there's a great merit in stepping forward. It might be that you are a Christian, but you've never really made that clear break with sin and counted the cost. Well, it might be you did that, but then have slipped back and you want to recommit yourself. If that's the case, when I ask, come forward. It might be that you've been listening to what I'm saying and thinking, you know, yeah, I understand it intellectually, but I'm fearful of what suffering could mean. I'm fearful of what persecution could mean. For people of my generation, Christians of my generation, uh, again, as a teenager, publishes a book by Corrie Ten Boom called The Hiding Place. She and her family are Dutch. And during the Second World War, they hid Jews, Dutch Jews in their house. They were betrayed. She ended up in a concentration camp. Her father died. Her sister died. I think a nephew survived the war but died because his health had been broken soon after. And I think there were other relatives as well. But God kept her through that. When she... This, I think at the time it happened, she must have been about in her 40s or that kind of age. 50s, 50s right. So she wasn't young. But when she'd been a teenager and sort of, you know, thinking about life, she says, well, said to her father, I don't know if persecution came or suffering came that I'd be able to stand. And her father, being a very wise man, said, if you're coming with me on the train, when do I give you the ticket? And she said, well, when we get to the station on the platform. She said, well, that's what God will do. He will give you the strength you need when you need it. And that is what she found. So we don't need to be fearful because we know who our saviour is and we know that he is ruling on high doesn't mean we d we're not realistic and don't necessarily ask ourselves I don't know whether I could do that but there is the point of saying I will trust you that if you take me to that situation I trust you that you'll provide the strength I need so we're not trying to say, I've got enough faith to do it. 
and therefore I know I can stand in suffering. If that's what you think, you're at fault. But what we can say is, I know whom I've put my trust in, and I know that he will enable me to stand. So I think the third group, if you fear that if suffering came, if persecution came, you wouldn't be able to stand, and you want to come and ask for prayer, in a sense, coming out is a step of commitment to say, this is what I'm doing, Lord. I'm putting my trust in you, that you will see me through. So actually, if any of those, start so if any of those apply to you, could you come forward now, and we'll pray for you.